Hello and welcome to Minimum Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest this week is Aaron Savarium. He is a writer, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon, and he coined the term sexual disenchantment, which I leaned on very heavily in my book, The Kiss of the Sexual Revolution. Uh, we talked about sexual disenchantment, Aaron's uh, conceptualization of it, and about the, uh, the problems that come with rejecting sexual morality of the past and trying to uh, institute an entirely new system that's uh, offers complete freedom to everyone. Having said that, though, Aaron is not, you know, entirely embracing of the trad position, as we discussed, and um, is very willing to critique the right. Uh, in the extended version of the, of the podcast, we spoke a lot about the relationship between the right and women and whether or not the right is becoming more misogynistic and whether or not the right is going to win. Uh, that extended version of the episode can be found on my substack, louiseperry.substack.com, where you can also find uh, all of the other episodes and the MMM chat community and also bonus episodes. Enjoy. So Aaron, I think that um, I owe you a lot of thanks for having come up with the term sexual disenchantment in a piece, I just checked, it was 2020 in the American Compass, a piece about cuties, um, which was this, um, uh, I don't know what adjective to use. It was this bad Netflix show about um, adolescent sexuality, which a lot of people have described as um, noncy. For my American readers, listeners, that means, yeah, pedophile adjacent. And um, I thought you wrote a really, really good essay on it in which you use the word sexual disenchantment, which I then used in my book, and I've ever since been telling people that I didn't come up with it. It's a really, really good, I mean, it's a great idea. So it's so, so borrowed from Max Weber, you know, the idea that the natural world was um, enchanted before the Enlightenment and no longer is, and that sexuality basically has gone through the same process during the 1960s. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I was trying to evoke. I think I think it's, it's, it's Max Weber and then also Ch- kind of Charles Taylor has similar thing. Um, yeah, you know, when when you engage in debates about hookup culture or pornography or sex workers, as the new term has it, or really any of those things, I think often the kind of more, I hesitate to say progressive, but the more maybe sex positive progressive side of the debate tends to ultimately retreat to something like a, a kind of crude materialism where they say, look, uh, we're just bodies, you know, sex just kind of feels good. Or maybe they'll say it has some emotional component, but ultimately the emotional component is just reducible to brain signals. Mm. And it's optional, I think. Right. So like, why, why should this be seen as special? Why should this be, this action be seen as anything other than just, I mean, they, they wouldn't say this, but they, they implicitly are framing sex almost like it's a drug where it's just like, well, this is just like, you know, an extra, it's kind of like heroin, it just feels really good. But unlike heroin, you know, it doesn't like, kill you or, or you know, well, they might say it doesn't result in addiction. That That's something that could be debated. But like, so you know, what's, what's the problem? It just it just makes you feel good. It's great. Um, and in that worldview, I think it's very hard to make sense of both kind of long standing patterns of kind of sexual regulation, like marriage, right? And why, you know, why is it that people choose to get married? Why is it that people find meaning in deliberate kind of 
in in the deliberate subjection of oneself to sexual constraint. Mm -hmm. Why do people choose to do that? Um, and then also, and this is this is one of my more controversial, I think, arguments, but I think it's it's a good one. Is just you know, if, if sex is just this kind of physical process, then it's not clear to me that it's no different, really, from any other. Um, and it's not so clear why sexual assault or rape should be such a significant uh, crime. It seems to me that to say that rape is this extra bad form of assault presupposes that sex is special in some way. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the question where I'll freely admit I'm the, the answer to which I'll freely admit I'm somewhat agnostic about is what, well, what exactly is it that makes sex special? Um, but I don't think that without some sense of kind of enchantment or specialness, you can really fully make sense of kind of the constellation of human intuitions that a lot of us have around sexuality. And therefore why cuties are so creepy, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I also think that frankly, if sex is just like, you know, an act just like any other, you know, People are allowed to hug kids without consent. I mean, there, there's some really crazy people on the internet who think that even that is assault, but like no one really thinks that, right? It's not, you, yeah. you hug your child without their consent, you have not assaulted them, duh. You sleep with your child without their, I mean, you, well, even with consent, that would be a problem, but like, but like non-consensual sexual touching of children in particular is like really bad. And then there, so there's this question of, well, why is that? And I suppose maybe, Sort of partisans of sexual disenchantment would just say, well, it's just like a contingent psychological fact that it's, you know, it made just children tend to be made worse off by this. And maybe that's true, but I, I don't really think that's a good answer because, you know, you can ultimately redescribe any set of, you know, intuitions or social patterns as kind of contingent biological facts, right? But then, but then the, the, the question is, well, we're human beings. How do we make sense of those facts? Why are those facts what they are? And, you know, uh, generally to operate in the world, you know, we need a kind of theory that is a little more robust than just, well, uh, you know, it's a contingent biological fact that this just tends to make people unhappy. Like, mm. okay, but then there's this, it still doesn't address the question of, well, but, but why? I mean, it seems kind of strange. Um, and indeed, you know, there are people who will argue, of course, well, there, there really shouldn't be any taboo or prohibition on pedophilia. What is the problem? And what do you say to those people? Uh, just say, well, actually, uh, it's a contingent biological fact that it makes children unhappy. You know, I, I mean, maybe that's true, but I don't think that that ends up being very satisfying to, to most people. I mean, because it doesn't always. It's just a, a kind of odd... <laughs> Is it oddly? It is a disturbing fact about child sexual abuse that actually a surprising proportion of people recover from it fine. Yeah. And it's actually, it has a very wide range of long-term psychological effects on people, which means that if you're being purely consequentialist about it, you, it actually, it does become quite difficult actually to, to maintain the taboo against it. And there are people who don't think there should be a taboo against it. Right. Or like, or like, you know, suppose, you know, you, you, a child is in a coma and you molest them while they're in the coma, but you know that they're never going to know about it. Right. And you don't tell anyone. Like most people intuitively think that that's wrong and still very deeply fucked up in some way. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not clear that you can really get to that conclusion by just appealing to psychological states of affairs. 
I've just been editing the young adult edition of The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And I have this whole section. There's a young adult edition. There will be soon, yes. I mean, I can uh -oh. tell you it's significantly slimmed down. <laughs> and including the, because I like, I have a whole chapter basically on pedophilia. And I start by talking about Jonathan Haidt's thought experiments in relation to sexual taboos on things like incest and, and like necrophilia and bestiality and whatever. And I was like, I don't have any material that I can use. <laughs> like all of, like obviously, because these are, these are, um, thought experiments designed to trigger feelings of distress and disgust. I confess, I don't think I've read the whole thing, um, but there can't be anything in there that's worse for young adult readers than gender. <laughs> well, I would say so, yeah. <laughs> I don't think there's graphic comics of, of sex between gender amorphous individuals um, pitched to... Pitch to <laughs> To, to sixth graders, which seems to be uh, what the American education system now now does. Um, no, but also, can you imagine what like your average progressive librarian would think if confronted True. with my book? I mean, it's me appalled, even if it's edited version. Gender queer, well, that's fine, but this, oh my god, you know, <laughs> this this one has a chapter called "Men and Women Are Different." Like that's absolutely. <laughs> I mean, wow, off wow. the table. <laughs> I mean, I think that consequentialists have really bad instincts when it comes to sexual morality, basically. I, I don't think there's really any way of getting away from that. Yeah, I mean, I do think that you, I mean, I'm kind of a soft consequentialist in general, but I mean, I think that you're right that consequentialism does not often do a great job of answering these kinds of questions. And also, you know, even if you think that consequentialism is true in some big picture sense, you know, a lot of consequentialists have long recognized that actually putting consequentialism into practice, making that kind of the ethical operating system of society would have disastrous results. And so it would be self-defeating on consequentialist terms, which is why there's a lot of people, including I think even probably someone like Peter Singer would argue yeah, you know, in practice, we want people to be kind of deontological because if people weren't deontological and just tried to do activitarianism, subject subject their every decision to this kind of, you know, uh, really complicated philosophic calculus, just society would collapse and that would be bad. Um, so, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you, but I think, I think you can actually be a consequentialist and still basically be like, look, even if like these weird sort of autistic types who are making these arguments about pedophilia might like not be wrong in some abstract philosophical sense do you actually think that normalizing those arguments is going to lead to good results no like obviously it won't um mm. and i think even consequentialists who are you know not just kind of brain dead contrarians can, can probably understand that. if they look at the consequences in a sufficiently macro way right I mean, it's easy for the virtue ethicist, right? Because you just say, well, I know that some children come out of child sexual abuse okay, but it, like, you don't, you, one, you don't know that as the would right. user, and two, um, it's bad, it's a bad instinct to have. I mean, that's when you get into, you know, difficult territory and thinking about pedophilia as something that might be innate. I had um, Michael Bailey on, I don't know if you're familiar with him. His work, he's a yeah. sex researcher. Yeah, as one of an uh, early podcast guest, and uh, he's one of these people who strongly have the opinion that it is innate in some in some people, a very small number of people. And um, 
yeah, what do you do with that? As a yeah, I mean, I, 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 tricky. I think that's probably true, but like, yeah. what is that? I mean, some people just are inherently more prone to violent outbursts than others. It's like, well, we don't, well, normal people who have not been, uh, infected with the woke mind virus, as Elon Musk calls it, normal people don't believe that just because someone has inherently bad impulse control, we throw up our hands and say, oh, well, you can't help it. So like, we're not going to discipline you at all. Right. Like, no, you know, obviously if you go up and start like randomly beating people up on the street, like that's bad and you should be put in jail. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't, I don't really care if it's innate or not. Like it's just bad behavior and needs to be, you know, confronted by society. Yeah. But then, um, I think we're going to have to talk about the woke mind virus in some in some Uh-oh. fashion <laughs> because the i'm gonna okay to try and steal man the sexual disenchantment view um the the the, the super progressive liberal feminist view would be that the alternative the pre-disenchantment system of sexual ethics which existed here and pretty much everywhere is highly patriarchal and uh, yes, controls male sexuality, but controls female sexuality to a greater degree and also stigmatizes people who have sexual preferences that don't seem to cause them any harm or their partners any harm. And so shouldn't we have a kind of radical uh, attempt at questioning that system and try and construct something better? And maybe sexual disenchantment is a necessary step towards that. For one, I, I think one problem with that view is that it just lumps kind of all pre sixty sexual regimes together with each other, when in fact there's a lot of variation, right? Like the ancient mm-hmm. Greeks or Romans, I'm not saying that we should go back to their system at all, but they did not have the same attitude toward, for example, homosexuality that you mm-hmm. know uh, Americans had in the 1950s. Um, so for one, I mean, there's there's so much diversity in kind of the pre-sexual revolution world that I I think it's kind of naive um, and, and narrow-minded to just think we can't learn anything from the mm-hmm. past cultures. Um, I mean, the other thing I would say is, look, like I basically share the ambition. Like, there's none. Of, it's not like there's any particular regime that I want to go back to. You know, pre the 1960s. Um, I mean, there's some. There may be some trads who listen to the podcast or no no everything was perfect in the 50s to which i'd say no obviously that's not the case um and it's good that women can work outside of the home and have more meaningful lives um but uh just because you don't want to go back to anything you know pre-1960s doesn't mean that you have to accept the kind of current state of affairs as legitimate um or as the best of all possible worlds and I would note that, like, even the feminists who, who you're sort of, you're kind of imagined feminist interlocutor who's making this argument, she probably doesn't think that this is the best of all possible worlds. I mean, these are the same people who mm. say, well, there's all these oppressive structures that still have to be torn down. And I guess my, my question, though, for those people would be, well, you know, take, let's just stipulate everything you're saying is right. There are these people with sort of weird sexual preferences that shouldn't really be stigmatized, blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. Let's just take that for granted. There's also people who have more kind of conventional sexual preferences who have trouble realizing them. 
right? Like if you just want to have a kind of long-term monogamous relationship um, where you only have sex with one person and there's kind of an emotional connection there um, and you see the kind of sex as being, you know, bound up with something greater than just the pure physical act. Like there are a lot of people who either don't want to do that or maybe who do want to do that, but who have trouble kind of meeting and pairing off um, in a world full of dating apps and, and kind of other things. So like if your goal is just everyone satisfies their preferences, well, okay, but like, does it seem like everyone is satisfying their preferences? No, it seems like very many people are not. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm granted, you know, how you quantify this stuff gets, gets tricky, but my sense is that there are probably more people, especially more women who want something like monogamy than want, you know, the crazy polysules that the New York Times writes about every couple of months, right? So, you know, maybe we can get to some utopia where the polysules can operate perfectly and everyone else can just operate perfectly. But but even if that's possible, we clearly don't live in that world. And it, it does seem to me like all the cultural energy, maybe, maybe there's starting to be a, a swing back towards the center, but for a while it really seemed like all the cultural energy was, was being invested in kind of normalizing these avant-garde, weird sexual preferences that by the preference holders own admission were kind of weird and probably, you know, not for everybody, right? You see all these polyamory stories where they're like, well, yeah, you know, it requires this like really intense level of trust and kind of, you know. A lot of spreadsheets. Right. And it's like, it's like, okay, so I mean, maybe some people can do that, but like what you're describing is just not something most people have. So mm. like, why is this what we're focused on as opposed to kind of making the culture and society safer for monogamy? Certainly, that would benefit more people on just kind of a preference utilitarian basis um, than all the polyamory stuff. Um, and then, of course, these people will say, well, but people don't know their own desires, which I just think starts to get into a kind of like self-defeating rabbit hole. Like, okay, I mean, but, you know, how is someone supposed to know what they're, what, okay, so they don't know their true desires. So what are their true desires? Under what conditions will the true desires express themselves? These people don't ever have answers. I mean, they're not serious philosophers. It usually just comes down to, well, what I like must be everyone's true preference, which is stupid. Um, you know, one thing that the feminists are actually right about is that people are different and there are different preferences. And so there's no reason to assume that most people deep down actually really want to be, um, you know, in a polysule. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I guess my, my short answer to that, your imagined feminist interlocutor is, Sure, I don't want to go back to the 60s either. I mean, the 50s either. Sure, people are stigmatized who shouldn't be. But if you look at what the problems right now seem to be and kind of just adopt it, this is where consequentialism is actually good. If you just adopt the kind of greatest good for the greatest number mindset, it seems pretty clear that we've, we long ago hit the point of diminishing marginal returns to more liberation and probably need to start thinking about more structure and order. You know, with stru and structure and order doesn't mean like, you know, no sexual enjoyment or no premarital sex or anything, but like it does mean structure and order. It does mean constraint. One of the really um, uh, frustrating things about being a conservative commentator, people should weep for the conservative commentators more on this front, is that it's so easy to get trapped in a situation where you're having to 
A, come up with some era in the past that you want to emulate and B, defend every element of it. Whereas what's really nice if you're a progressive is you just have to get to say, well, I have this future orientation, which will be great. And it's never happened yet and it's never likely to, but like I don't have to defend any of the, any of the yeah. the failures of that system because it doesn't exist yet. And it's and it's necessarily kind of utopian. Um, whereas, right, this like back to the 1950s thing, I mean, the 1950s is like fairly good time to be alive, honestly. Like if you were going to choose every decade, it's interesting that the 50s is the one that everyone goes to as this like a horror show. I'd rather live there than, I don't know, the second century or the 17th, <laughs> I think, yeah. <laughs> given the choice. I mean, when you just think about the improvements in sort of the material quality of life, you know, material yeah. material welfare isn't everything, but like even just living in like the late 19th century compared to the, the 1950s, I guess, night and yeah. day. Right? And also in terms of sexual politics, I mean, it obviously depends on which it'd be probably be pretty cool to be like a roman male citizen in the second century but yeah i mean even just thinking about i don't know being a yeah i'd I'd rather be a woman in the 1950s than pretty much any other era actually then i mean with more than now i guess it depends on i guess it depends on your your personal preferences and this is where it gets difficult like if a lot of women do actually basically have vanilla monogamous sexual desires and want to be homemakers. Like actually a lot of women fall into that category and for them, the more conservative culture yeah. is a better fit. But there are also a lot of women for whom that's not true. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of women I think who want to fall into, who want monogamous relationships and do you want kids, but also want to have some kind of job? Yeah. I mean, you know, there are, then there's some who don't, but like, I, I think I know a lot of women who are pretty trad. Like, for example, you know, Leah Labresco. Mm-hmm. Right. So like, she's, she's, I mean, and certainly very, very conservative. And she has two kids. Um, yeah, I think she has two kids. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, we'll take them with her to various, you know, talks or work events, which is really adorable. I have I have met Leah's kids at one of these events. Yeah, yeah, she's amazing. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. Yeah. But like, but like, she also does go to these kinds of events and is a kind of public intellectual. So you know, and granted, I mean, I I think that Leah is particularly high IQ and probably probably there are not that many women who could have quite the career she has while balancing demands of children just because that takes a lot of work um but you know it's it's definitely not impossible right like elizabeth brunig is another one um who's Mm -hmm. kind of done that um at a pretty young age i would add so you know i i don't i mean that this and this is an example of where i think the sort of feminist dichotomy is kind of unfair it's like well look i mean here's someone who has a kind of in certain ways is living a more trad life, but in other ways is still fairly modern and emancipated, right? Um, and they act like this is some exotic thing. I mean, no, there, there are actually quite a few people who, who manage to do this. Um, it's not impossible. And also historically, it has been common for women, particularly intelligent and um, well-off women to have 
careers of one form or another. Yeah. Um, whether that be kind of doing, I mean, actually a lot of the jobs that women predominate in now, like say in charities, um, were jobs that they just used to do for free, but is now being kind of formalized you know what what 19th century middle class ladies used to do once their children had flown the nest is actually fairly similar to what a lot of middle class ladies do now it was just um uh it was a period where living on one income was to be expected so which i don't you know i don't want to fall i'm i'm this is exactly the trap you end up in right you say there are actually some things about the past that were either similar or okay or better and uh and then you say oh you're saying everything about the 19th century was good you know from cholera to slavery. Right, right. I think sometimes you just have to bite the bullet and say, this element was better. And also I think the point is, and this is, again, this is a fundamentally conservative insight and it's one that a lot of progressives just don't like, is that it isn't actually possible to have a perfect culture and that you do have to break some eggs. Right. I mean, the other thing I would say is that that, that kind of doing this before, after with the 60s may not even be, like, like it's weird that everyone goes to that because... Why not? Why, why not talk about like the nineties? Like, were the nineties better? Were the was the early two thousands better? You know, was the eighties better? And I don't know if the answer would be yes. I mean, in certain ways they probably weren't, but in other ways, you know, I, I mean, the, the big thing I come back to is I. Yes, dating has always been tough. We shouldn't imagine that there was ever some glorious utopia where just you know all men, no matter how like ugly or unattractive were, you know, swimming in dates, right? That's not true. But I really do think that the invention of dating apps and kind of the, the new norm of meeting online does seem to have disproportionately advantaged um some people um and very much disadvantaged others, right? I mean that's I'm I'm sim- I'm I'm sympathetic to kind of the basic idea of Michelle Welbeck's kind of, you know, sexual neoliberalism, right, where you, you, you take all the constraints off and then, uh, I mean, the technical term is hypergamy, but if, you know, a few number of men end up with a lot of women, um, women aren't necessarily happy with that because the men aren't necessarily settling down with them, but like, uh, you know, I, I do think that dating apps have exacerbated that phenomenon for all sorts of reasons yeah, definitely i think i'm not sure if there's a way to ban dating apps but it does seem like there is a both a kind of grassroots maybe recognition now that dating apps kind of suck and i read more trend pieces about people just opting out of them voluntarily um and i also would not be surprised if more dating apps come along that kind of end up reintroducing some of the old kind of constraints or trying to simulate them um like limiting how many times you can swipe or or you know uh doing things where that somehow making it so that pictures are de-emphasized a little i don't know but in general it seems like uh you know my sense is pretty much any young person who's been on dating apps you talk to, unless they're just you know, absolutely gorgeous, will tell you they suck. And even if they're absolutely gorgeous, they'll probably, if they're guys, say, yeah, but, you know, after a while, it kind of gets to be like a treadmill and it's unfulfilling. And if they're girls, they'll complain about all the dick pics they get, right? So, you know, I, I really don't 
know many young people who say positive things about dating apps, even the ones who end up meeting their spouse off of dating apps. Like, like very few people are like, oh yeah, these are great. You know, everything's fine. Um, and just you go back to like the early 2000s. I mean, I think there actually was probably more of a culture of just going up to people and asking them in person, hey, want to go out with me? That very simple change seems like that, that's like that probably was better in a pretty important respect for a lot of people. Um, and you know, I don't really see why. The, and there were plenty of places in the early 2000s where you could do that and where, you know, gay people were perfectly tolerated, right? Like in, like in California in, you know, 2005, there's no Tinder, but there's like obviously no real stigma against gay people, I don't think. Um, you know, certainly not in a really liberal California city. Um, so, you know, would you rather live in like 2005 California versus like, you know, 2023 dating app dystopia? I don't know. I, I think you can make a pretty good case for 2005 California. I think probably most people would, would choose 2005. I was obviously, I was, uh, 13 in 2005, so I can't really speak to like, days and culture of any kind let alone californian yeah, how old were you 13 13 okay yeah i was young i was like nine okay so this oh wait, yeah, so yeah, wait so how old okay so you're not that i was born in 1992 oh yeah you're only four years okay oh yeah yeah so we we can't speak from direct experience but i am told by like gen x friends that yeah. um it was quite a uh, sort of liberal liberal with both a big and a small L time in terms of dating um, although I kind of wonder if that was a, that might have been because it was a bit of an interregnum it was like the old sexual culture had obviously been torn down by the 60s yeah. you know slowly then all at once and then you hadn't yet had some of this new you know, you hadn't had Me Too happen. You obviously hadn't had the dating apps, but you also hadn't had what I think liberal feminists have tried to do in recent years, which was to try and to reintroduce some degree of order. This is the order that they're reintroducing is 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 ineffective. It's things like age gap discourse, where they're trying to find sort of things, or, or like West Elm Caleb, do you remember this guy? Yes, I do remember. Yeah, anyone listening who doesn't remember, he was basically a, like a fuck boy on Tinder who did very well in New York and was dating loads of women. And uh, all these women kind of found out. I still don't really know how true this was, but there was like a little rush of, a flurry of stories about women who had like found out they were all dating the same guy and were very cross about it. And he worked at West Elm, the furniture store, which is why it was called West Elm Caleb. I still kind of suspect that it might have been marketing from West Elm Furniture Store because I hadn't heard of it before. And suddenly it was like <laughs> a trending term. So I still sort of think it maybe wasn't, it was maybe a, like a either marketing campaign or PSYOP or something. But anyway, like the West Elm Caleb phenomenon, like within the dating, like West Elm Caleb didn't do anything wrong within the current paradigm no right exactly i mean all, all the women complaining it was like well did you did you say you know hey i want to be exclusive did you, i mean and look like it's unfortunate that that sort of thing has to be said i wish that that was more the default but well exactly like they were he 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 was he was wrong within the old system but he wasn't wrong within the current system so what these women are implicitly saying is the current system is bad and the old system in this regard is better but they don't actually want to say that so you, you just end up with these kind of 
I don't know, attempts to reintroduce rules that actually don't work very well and aren't universally acknowledged. There was some Vice article that was about young people turning to radical monogamy. And it's like, well, no, 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 it's it's radical monogamy because it's like freely chosen and understand what all the alternatives are. But as perfect, (laughs) it's like, what did people not under, did people like before, you know, 2020 not know that there were alternatives to monogamy and still choose monogamy anyway? Like, right. And still, I mean, there is this meme that I don't remember. I think it might be Oron McIntyre on Twitter, but he has some meme about how progressives will periodically re-engineer healthy sexual behavior. Yes. Which which they totally which they do do and it's really entertaining to watch anytime it happens. Um, yeah, well, it's sort of, sort of kind of what a lot of conservatives are trying to do as well, in, in sort of like arguing from first principles for why actually the old regime was better. But I mean, that's kind of what I'm doing because the old regime is gone, right? But also, you can't. I think you probably can't actually construct sexual cultures from first principles. I think you have to construct them from experimentation and what sticks. Like that's what tradition is. Um, yeah. And that's, I think that's what Me Too is trying to do. It's trying to, or post Me Too kind of liberal feminism, which is quite incoherent. And people will say all the time, like, why are you calling it sex positive when actually it's incredibly sort of restrictive and right. often quite like hysterical about something like age gaps? You know, the idea that like it's, right. it's pedophilia to date a woman five years younger than yourself or whatever is like not very sex positive. Um, I say, yeah, but I think actually those contradictions are inherent to the, are are an inevitable consequence of the failure of the project. That's actually another example of something that, I I mean, you know, maybe not directly, but I I think sexual disenchantment has also made it a bit harder to explain what we might find distasteful about those age gaps. Right now, the the, Mm. the argument is always about consent. But but look, I mean, in in, in many ways, right, like, you know, there's the joke about Leonardo DiCaprio and, and only dates women under 25 i mean look like 24 year old women obviously can consent to sleeping with leonardo dicaprio i mean that's not really the issue but i think everyone does nonetheless understand that it's a bit unseemly for this guy to just cycle through woman after woman um and not want anyone who's like older than 25 but if the only morality is consent it's just not clear how you would explain why leo's uh uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's preferences are bad. And never have children as well. He's like, he, right. dating all these women in their prime fertility, it's like having a fleet of Ferraris in the garage and never drive. Right. <laughs> it's like, it's quite perverse behavior. Um, yes, I mean, I think, so sometimes you can sort of explain this through things like, I don't know, power imbalances or something. I mean, obviously Leonardo DiCaprio is powerful in a sense because he's rich and famous. Um, but... I think what what's really being described there is just being kind of ungentlemanly. Yeah. Well, and also, and also, I think there is a sense that that may turn people off, which is that he he only dates really young women because the, the only thing he seems to care about is their physical appearance. Yeah. And you sort of think that's yeah, that's kind of unseemly. You know. Yeah. I mean, I think I think everyone agrees physical appearance matters, and it's legitimate to care about it just because it's sort of impossible to have you know a kind of close romantic relationship with someone with whom there is no physical chemistry it just doesn't really work um in general i don't think for most people that's the case but um but you know 
it's one thing to treat it as a kind of necessary condition. It's another thing to sort of be optimizing for it and want that to be the only, you know, to make that the only thing you care about. That's what I think people intuitively find unseemly. Um, but yeah, we don't really have a good moral vocabulary for talking about why it's unseemly. A slightly cynical view would be that the what's going on when women who are, you know, older than 25 or whatever his cutoff is, um, what they're doing when they criticize Leonardo DiCaprio is they're trying, they like historically or in some periods of history, um, probably not that many. Honestly, I think the rich and famous men have always shagged around, but there have been periods of history where there's been more limits placed on male sexuality and it's been more expected that men should basically, yes, choose a woman partly based on her beauty, but then stick with her monogamously forever and you both grow old gracefully together, um, i.e. monogamous marriage, like Christian marriage specifically. Whereas now that that's gone, like there isn't any more the, 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 the social technology in place to kind of enforce male behavior in that way. So what some of these women maybe are trying to do is, you know, you you basically can't stop your man leaving you for a younger woman except maybe by calling him a creep yeah yeah i think there's something to that um you know the fact that they have no language for kind of articulating that demand don't leave me is is telling um sad i i actually thought you were going to say that some of it is that they also just it might be even more basic. I mean, some of them might just feel like they don't want to acknowledge that, like, they're not young and attractive. I mean, I mean, I mean, right? Like, it may it may not even be that they're like worried about their own guy leaving them. I mean, it might also be just the sort of you know Nietzschean resentment where you tend to you know try to transvaluate you know the values of health and beauty um, and turn them into almost negatives um, because you lack them yourself, and so you don't want to acknowledge them as kind of normative. And I think that there is a, that's, that's, I don't mm. think that's the, the, the total of it, but I, I do think that happens where, you know, some of these books, like the, the sex ed books, you know, I, I, I see the diagrams in them and the cartoons. And it's like, yeah, look, it's, it's probably if you're going to teach kids about the birds and the bees, you don't want to give them unrealistic expectations. But in some cases now, it really seems like the, the illustrators are going out of their way to make all the characters really ugly. And because it's like, well, we have to be fat positive. So there will be like really fat. It's like, no, I mean, you shouldn't be showing kids this because like, you know, you actually should, I think, expose kids to some normative sense of beauty because like it or not, those normative standards are going to operate in their lives. And, you know, pretending that, uh, I mean, yes, you know, all bodies are okay. Sure. There's an obvious sense in which that's true. But like, not all bodies are equally attractive and not all weights are equally healthy, right? I mean, I don't think it would be bad to like kind of give kids the message. Yeah, you know, you should try to not grow up to be really fat. Like it would be better if kids did not grow up to be really fat. Like they'll be happier. They'll have more romantic success and they'll live longer because they won't die of, you know, coronary heart disease. Like, you know, and it's, it, it does seem like there's this almost primitive, just like aversion to just anything beautiful. Um, on some corners of the left, which I find disturbing. I think the aversion is to hurting people's feelings and the existence of hierarchies full stop, but particularly those related to health and beauty are, yeah, well, like that it's kind of zero sum. Right. Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, 
yeah, like beauty is a hierarchy and not everyone yeah. can be born equally beautiful. I mean, I'm like, yeah. I'm like a pretty short guy. I mean, it's unfortunate, but you know, like, yeah, guys who are like six foot five are going to have more romantic prospects than I will. Like, that's just the, the way the world works. Um, I think that, um, I don't know, lookism or beauty hierarchies or whatever provoke more um, uh, sort of denialism because because they are actually so profoundly important and influence people more than they like to admit. Like there are, there's, there are all these data on how um, basically good-looking people just get better things in yeah. life all over the place and in ways you don't even realise. Like there was some great data done on like how much waitresses and waiters it affects men as, as well right how, how much waiters and waitresses get tipped when they were wearing face masks during covid versus not and basically the face masks led to a kind of uh a greater egalitarianism in tipping because customers couldn't differentiate the beauty of their servers that's interesting yeah and that that's that's ha- stuff happens all the time and so and i think we all know that as well but we're we're all like deeply preoccupied with it and so hence the desperate efforts to sort of flail against it and to pretend it's not true i think john mcwhorter once had this great thought experiment which was like would you rather be like born black and very attractive or white and like ridiculously overweight and his point was that the point was that everyone would rather be born black and attractive Mm. in contemporary america right yeah well, right. I mean, I mean, people might say, oh, because, you know, if you're black and attractive, the police will kill you or something. But like, but like, no, come on. I mean, I mean, mm. you're certainly if you hold everything else equal, right, you know, educational attainment, right, socioeconomic status, what have you. And the only thing you change is either attractive black guy or or girl or unattractive white guy or woman. I think everyone would choose. I, I mean, obviously yeah, it depends yeah. on the magnitude, but like, like certainly, like if you're talking like three, you know, three hundred pounds, like a three hundred pound, like white guy who's five five, and it's it's fat, it's not muscle. I mean, I I, I can tell you there is there is data on this. Um, the gap between like good looking and not is greater than the gap between black and white in terms of income in in America. Right. And look, I mean, obviously, you know, obligatory caveat that yes, there's this entire history of of horrible racial chattel slavery and Jim Crow that single people out on the basis of race and not looks. And yes, that's different. No, I'm not saying that, you know, lookism is like a bigger moral problem than racism. Caveat, caveat, caveat. But yeah, like, obviously, if you, you know, assume that both people are going to be middle to upper middle class and the only relevant difference is kind of race and attractiveness, you'd probably rather be from, I think most people behind closed doors, even if they want to admit this publicly, would rather be an attractive person from a historically oppressed race than a really unattractive person who's white. Yeah. I'm sure, yeah, no, no, I'm sure that's true. And I think as well that there's a slight sort of shame in admitting that and people are ashamed of admitting how, how interested they are in their own looks and in those of other people, which is, yeah, why I think it 
it leads to this slightly perverse kind of um, politics. And I guess what's going on, yeah, when when going back to Leonardo DiCaprio, is um, it's not very nice as a woman over the age of 25 to know that, like, there's such a premium on youth between the ages of whatever, like 16 and 25. Um, because that's, yeah, there's a hierarchy there and you're like, oh, nuts, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm falling ever further to the bottom of it with every passing day. So hence, I'm sure efforts to sort of, like, just insist that it doesn't exist. The problem is I'm not sure. Like, men can be shamed into not being, like, behaving like Leonardo DiCaprio to some extent but they can't be shamed into finding different things attractive. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, and and this is one of these things, like there's, there's that uh, woman, Amia Srinivasan, and, and some mm-hmm. other people in that ilk. I'd love to get her on the podcast. I don't know if she ever will. I'll yeah. try one day. <laughs> Talks all about the social construction of desire and stuff. And look, no doubt elements of desire are socially constructed in different cultures do place premia on different physical traits to an extent but come on i mean not that much though and actually what's yeah what's really interesting actually is how much consistency there is i mean it depends on what sort of beauty depictions you're looking at because obviously there is um there are other status games going on you know like what we see on the catwalks at Milan Fashion Week is not going is not actually like the purest expression of what the West finds beautiful right now. It's more like what gay fashion designers find beautiful right, right. now. Okay. Um, but if you look specifically at say depictions of women across cross-culturally, which are intended to be arousing, like erotic imagery, say fertility goddesses or like pornography, sex dolls, all this kind of stuff, there's actually a remarkable degree of consistency in terms of physique i mean look i think to the extent that you can deconstruct desires and maybe reassemble them into a more egalitarian pattern sure i I feel like that would be good but it's just the very little you can really do on that front um you know no amount unless unless you go full kind of sexual malazon and start you know purposefully disfiguring beautiful people you know i just don't ever gonna get like full kind of equality on this front um Mm. and you know like i I mean i will say i I think that um fortunately for guys women don't care quite as much about looks as men do they care about other kinds of status though yes yeah so there is a, a degree of symmetry there yeah which is which is which is you know i think that can be comforting for some men but you know that's also right my sense is that there are people who maybe aren't beautiful, but are other, you know, very smart or very charming or funny or have a very high paying job. I mean, there's stuff like that where you can kind of compensate for some, to some extent. Um, but most people don't actually have the super high status, right? Like by definition, right? Um, you know, uh, so that's not really, that may be comforting to a certain class of ivy educated male nerds like myself who are largely driving this discourse so like maybe <laughs> and then i mean even you know and and look like it's not like men only care about looks but i mean like 
outcomes. I wish I cared less about looks. Like, I think it's kind of sad and unfair that that's the way biology operates. Just not going to be deeply attracted or want to, like, spend every waking hour of your day with someone to whom you just don't find physically appealing. And I just, it's like, that's just the kind of the way it works. Um, and that probably is, uh, going back to the um, sort of historical marriage markets, like, it probably is the case that women who are now single would historically have married a man they didn't find very attractive because they kind of had to. I think a lot about um, Pride and Prejudice as a kind yeah. of, what like you know, what would happen to the women now, the different characters in Pride and Prejudice. And the one I think about a lot is um uh is it charlotte who's elizabeth's friend like plain friend i've never actually read pride and prejudice uh much to my shame but i uh i haven't read it since school so i can't remember all the characters but the the the, the pretty witty protagonist has like a plain friend who ends up marrying like basically the man that the pretty witty protagonist rejects mr collins because mr collins has like a good job and you know can provide a nice life but is boring and annoying and so she rejects him and ends up doing a really really fabulous like uh, instance of hypergamy in marriage marrying mr darcy but then her friend basically accepts mr collins as like the offcuts and she's like well like i can't the nature of life for women in the early 19th century is that they have to get married and probably she wouldn't now. Mr. Collins would be an incel and she would be single. Right. And like, I, I don't know, which is, I, I think that the, 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 the older form is probably better for society writ large. I don't know. I mean, certainly in terms of things like. Um, yeah, I think it was probably better for society, but I'm not sure it was better for the particular individuals involved. I mean, I, or maybe it was. I don't know, yeah. I don't know. Well, the other thing is, right, you can get, I mean, I think maybe a bit more so for women, you know, you can, you can get married. I think you can get into a relationship with someone and maybe develop the feelings to some extent. Like, there, you know, there are these examples of arranged marriages. Yeah, people say this, yeah. But I don't know. Look, I mean, I mean, I will say, I, I one thing that really bothers me about a lot of trad discourses, they're like, well, just like, you know, date for like a year and then get married. And if you're not going to get married, you know, then, then you're not really serious about it. And, you should call it off it's like okay but like first of all there's a kind of there's an epistemological problem right where people want to be sure that they're going to be compatible over the long term and yes like there were people who you know got married quicker in earlier eras eras and stayed married um some of those people stayed married and were really happy some of them stayed married and were kind of miserable and maybe you think that you know them getting divorced today is not good for society but like part of what is good for society you know society is made up of individuals and two individuals are really unhappy i mean that has to factor into the calculus something mm, mm. and i just think it's like a i mean there's so there's sort of the 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 worry about you know ending up in a situation that really would be miserable and um some of those stable relationships from the 1950s and earlier were probably pretty shitty um, they were stable but shitty. Um, I think everyone who's like not dishonest will acknowledge that. Um, 
And then the other thing is that even if one partner, you know, in the dyad, it, you know, is willing to get married that early, like once the norms have shifted, uh, you know, the other partner might not be, right? So, you know, I, I sometimes hear people, oh, just gotta get pitched, you know, after a year. It's like, well, what if the other person doesn't want to do that? Like, it, it, you know, I, I really think that a lot of the, the trad discourse on this stuff is just a lot of their advice would work if we were living in their ideal world. But the whole problem is that we don't live in their ideal world and thus their advice is just not very practical. You know, it's not very practical. Um, if you act on it, you're not necessarily going to actually achieve the results they want. Um, because just not enough people buy into that culture anymore. I mean, it's a, it's really a sort of a game theory problem. Um, uh, yeah, you know, and, and in general, my, my, one of my big critiques of kind of the trad discourse around all this stuff is that they want to give kind of a homogenous sort of, you know, categorical, very simple categorical imperatives to everyone. Not realizing that, especially in a kind of post-sexual revolution world, there's just different segments of the population that frankly need to hear different things and need different structures, right? Like, like, an in, like, like imagine like telling an incel who's like 25, who's like, say, never, like, say, like, never even kissed a girl like 25. Imagine telling that guy, oh, yeah, first person you meet, just get married to them within like, you know, six months or a year. I mean, the guy is going to be like, well, first of all, that doesn't help me meet someone. Mm. Secondly, when I do, I mean, that's a very different situation to be in from someone who like, you know, had a bunch of relationships in college, right? And just the advice is not going to land the same. Um, and I think that, unfortunately, um, it'd be nice if we could give everyone the same advice. But because we live in this variegated, diverse, uh, kind of sexual mores, decentralized world, uh, you just can't really give everyone the same advice and expect it to be applicable in all cases. Um, and I think one thing that the right has struggled with is coming up with a, not just a coherent message, but really kind of a, a series of different coherent messages that are mm. pitched to different segments of the population. Like I think mm. what, an, what an incel needs to hear is probably very different from what someone who's been like living with a girlfriend for five years, but hasn't tied the knot needs to hear. Right. Or, or, you know, someone who's maybe been dating someone for one year, but has had, you know, a decent amount of romantic experience. Right. Like, like maybe you can give the same advice to all of these people. But I'm just not convinced that that's going to really pay any dividends. I think that's true. But it also is not really, I mean, the other thing too people don't realize is that like, you know, a lot of, because I'm in sort of the DC conservative world. I mean, there are some women who really do just want to be housewives. But there are a lot of women who basically want to get married, want to have kids, want a family, and don't want to wait to do all that until they're 30. But they also want a career and they also don't want to be miserable. And they aren't sure that, you know, the guys who are getting kind of drunk, you know, in Navy Yard, um, which is kind of like the area where a lot of young DC Republicans hang out and hitting on them, you know, at 1 a.m. It's like, ah, you know, uh, I'm not sure that these guys are marriage material, right? Like, I mean, the idea that people say, well, women are the gatekeepers of sex, so they should just, you know, gatekeep and stop being promiscuous. It's like, well, yeah, they should stop being promiscuous, but they also may not be in a position where they can just like 
find a guy whose marriage material and easily, you know, ascertain, oh, yeah, this will work, and then go from there, right? Like, like that first step, right, is actually pretty difficult. Um, so, you know, and it can be frankly difficult, I think, for guys who are more conservative to find girls who, you know, are, like, even if you, you know, socialize in conservative circles, like, you know, there, there's going to be limits to, to how many women are actually, like, practicing what they preach, right? So, you know, I, I just think a lot of this stuff uh, you hear, um, especially from the kind of very online chat, right, is just totally divorced from reality. Um, I don't really have, like, a great solution for this. <laughs> but I certainly don't think that their solutions are particularly practicable. Yeah, I, I agree with you about that. this idea of the kind of different messages for different groups and how does one... One, how does one kind of tailor the right message and two how does one know which audience like I belong to <laughs> like which 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 message should I be listening to I mean I've I've been told and I, I think it's true that basically my like ideal reader um is a uh woman low in sociosexuality like a woman who wants to have a monogamous relationship but has been raised in kind of progressive circles and is good looking. Like like that woman does really well by being told to just gatekeep sex more and to basically be more confident about demanding monogamy. Yes. Because, and, and, and a woman who's also agreeable. So a woman who's basically currently getting a lot of offers and putting up with kind of shitty casual sex and actually would like to, 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 yes. to find a monogamy. Like that woman should totally... <laughs> do what I tell her um, but there but those that obviously doesn't represent the entirety of the population right no exactly exactly I don't really know what my advice is for like I mean there are a lot of guys out there who are sort of offering advice to sort of incels all else equal right you know is going to the gym gonna be better for you yeah you know go to the gym is going it's better for everyone probably yeah, yeah, is, is you know, it's probably better also for guys, you know, even though they may enjoy the no-strings-attached stuff in the short run, it is probably better in general for them to stay away from, you know, just sort of total debauchery, right? But yeah, you know, you know, I think that what, what, what you need to tell, like, the, A, I mean, some of their problems are structural, right? Like, the dating app thing, I mean, you know, you've seen the statistics, I'm sure, what like the Chini coefficient is on the dating apps, like how much sexual mm. inequality. I mean, it's it's that's not really something that most men can opt out of. And maybe you can say, well, just like go to church and meet people in person. Well, you know, like some guys aren't that religious and don't find church very meaningful. And you know, speaking as someone who's kind of secular himself, like I think it is. You know, if there was more church attendance, that probably would be good. But you know. I don't really enjoy sitting through, I wouldn't really enjoy sitting through church sermons that I don't believe in. And I'd also frankly feel kind of guilty about simply going to church solely for the purpose of like finding a girl, right? Like that, you know, that, that sort yeah, of seems yeah. to instrumentalize it and kind of false advertising. Right. And, you know, girls who actually want to meet like a devout partner aren't going to be happy if, you know, you're only there to pick up women. So the whole, the whole thing just, yeah, like, it would be great if everyone could just go back to these wonderful, God-fearing, 
norms, but that's just not practical. You know that we did a matchmaking event recently for the podcast. How did it go? It went very well. It was like small, it was uh, 50 people-ish. Um, and it was basically, and we, we made it equally men and women. And I believe that there were like, I don't know, four second dates resulting from it. Um, which is pretty good, I would say, much better than the dating yeah. app. Um, and we, we, we intend to do more. It's quite a lot of work, so I haven't got around to organizing the next one. And people keep saying, oh, please, please can we have them in other cities and stuff? Because it's that way of getting it offline and all of this. But it's a tricky coordination problem. It's hard to scale that, though, right? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's that's probably good. I think, um, you know, one thing that, that can be hard, but it's not impossible, is you just tell people, look, you know, dating apps really aren't going well for you. Just try to do other things where you will meet other people, like get a hobby or something. And that's, you know, again, that can be easier said than done, but it's not impossible. And as much as I complain that the dating apps have kind of become hegemonic, I, look, I mean, I met my current girlfriend just basically through partly mutual friends and then just like we met at a party. Basically. So like it, it can happen, right? It can happen. Mutual friends are, I, I, I mean, also just in terms of meeting friends, because you know, it's hard to make friends when you're a grown up. Yeah. Um, ev- basically every friend I have, I made through another friend, like via another friend. I've never right. made, I don't think I've ever made a friend from just like going to a, I don't know, a salsa evening or whatever you're supposed to do. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's every so magazines. often you can kind of make friends if you're just in a, it depends. I mean, that's, that's another skill that's kind of, you have to learn how to do it. And again, mm. this is where it gets tough, right? Like some of these incels. Some of them may just be really unattractive, but I think a lot of them, if they had their exact same looks, but were really confident and funny and had a high paying job, they'd, they'd be getting plenty of dates. The problem is that they don't have those things. And some of it is learned, right? But some, I mean, look, like people with autism, for example, just will have more trouble learning how to navigate those kinds of situations. Um, yeah. And that's, yeah. I mean, and you know, you were talking about the, the woman, in, in Pride and Prejudice, who kind of settles, right? But I think it's also the case that men, you know, in a previous era, because of those incentives, right, men could also kind of rely on, well, okay, you know, someone will marry me. And now they can't in quite the same way, um, which may be good for women who don't have to settle for someone who really sucks. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, middle ground between beautiful, smart, funny, and just completely shitty, unattractive human beings, right? There are people who maybe aren't gorgeous, but have other things going for them. There's people who are maybe just frankly kind of average, right? And I think those people probably did have an easier time of it in when there was, frankly, less sexual freedom. Um, You know, there also were these sad unhappy relationships and and I, I mean also the other thing we haven't mentioned is there was probably a certain amount of normalized infidelity right where it was kind of just normal for men to go to prostitutes or whatever in certain cultures um and i guess there are probably relationships where everyone kind of knew that's what was going on and we're fine with it but i would imagine that that involved a lot of quiet kind of suffering and misery on the woman's part. Um, and, you know, maybe women are, I mean, I mean, here's a question, like, would you rather, would you rather be in a monogamous, 
like like or no would you would you rather be in a kind of relationship or married to a guy but they're gonna from time to time go to brothels or would you rather just like not be in a relationship not be married at all and just be single i would imagine that women's preferences on that question are gonna vary but like that's not like i choose the latter quite right but like that doesn't surprise i mean at least some people are going to choose the latter and like that's not crazy um Mm. and you know yeah i don't i don't really know what you do about that but um the proliferation it's kind of ironic that as you know the proliferation of choice has arguably foreclosed certain choices like those sorts of relationships where you know one partner kind of like sees a woman on the side and it's just kind of normal um you know, and in one sense, you could say, well, you know, society kind of worked with that. Um, on the other hand, how do you kind of measure the happiness of society, right? Women were probably mm. trapped in those relationships really, really unhappy and couldn't leave, mm. you know, I don't know, like, it's just not obvious to me. So that that's, that's my other whole issue with the trad stuff is when you actually try to like, construct those sort of rigorous philosophical, like, like tabulate all the values and be like, all right, all things considered, which is better? And we've sort of been playing this game all conversation, but like, it's just actually very hard to compare different states of affairs. There's a lot of trade-offs, and, you know, I, yeah, I, I don't really know what you do. But yeah, I, I mean, frankly, and also like, would I rather be in a relationship with a girl who like is going to occasionally cheat on me or just be single for the rest of my life? I mean, I don't even know how I'd answer that. Like, maybe with the girl, but like, that's, that's like not a, that's not an easy one. I don't think, um, maybe, maybe you begrudgingly say, okay, the girl, but like, it's not, you know, it's not a, it's not a choice you'd be happy about making. I think what you're revealing here is that you have a, uh, you have a conservative temperament (laughs) where you're like, just acutely aware all the time of trade-offs and, and, uh, and pessimistic outlook, which I share because, you know, what, I guess what, uh, you know, going back to our kind of progressive feminist imagined interlocutor, she'd probably say, well, you know, we just kind of come up with a better, freer system than, than we might not right. have problems. And I think she's um, wrong. But then it might, but then maybe that's just a personality thing. I mean, we know that there are personality differences between progressives and conservatives, so. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, I think both the um, kind of the hardcore trads and this kind of pro- the, this progressive, imagine progressive feminists i think they both are very naive about the scope and complexity of trade-offs and yeah at a certain point i think the sort of more honest kind of epistemically humble position is to be like look it's okay to want a better world and to think about ways of getting that better sexual culture think about ways of getting it but you know you're not going to get something perfect. Um, and it's just naive to act like, and then frankly, even more moderate people can fall into this trap where it's like, well, you know, we'll just take all the good stuff about the past eras and get rid of all the bad stuff and it'll be perfect. It's like, no, I mean, no, that's not going to happen. There's going to be some unforeseen consequence, right? Um, yeah, I, I just think people should be a little more, have a bit more of a sense of the tragic and, and not, uh, and, and steer clear of this kind of utopianism. I agree. It's not a very. Uh, I I want to I want to go into the paywalls bit, um, 
and I'm slightly loath to end this part of the episode on the on the uh, we should embrace the tragic, but actually we should embrace the tragic. It's probably a really good message for all sorts of areas of life. So, so I'm going to, but in the extended bit, I want to ask you about more about the rights relationship to the left. Oh, sorry, the rights relationship to women, and about the current inability it seems of the right to really attract female support and this massive kind of divergence between men and women because I think that's really interesting I want to hear what you think um but for everyone else who's listening where can they find more of your work so I am a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon so most of my reporting you just go to that website you'll see it I'm on Twitter at Aaron Severium um it's probably the easiest way to keep up with me um yeah awesome thank you Aaron Thank you so much for watching that episode of Men, Mother, Matriarch and for all of your support. It means an enormous amount for the growth of the show. If you want to hear bonus content, an extra 20, 30 minutes of conversation with the guest, maybe a little bit more personal, a little bit less filtered, then you can go to my substack at louiseperry.substack.com where you can sign up for extended episodes and also bonus episodes and you can also access our chat community. You can also support the show by subscribing on YouTube or subscribing wherever you get your podcasts and rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts is also really great for encouraging other people to give the show a try. Please also spread the word, tell people that you know who you think might like it to give it give it a shot. Um, the word of mouth effect is really valuable. So we'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening, watching and supporting what we're doing. <laughs>